Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Go figure. Um, I was actually really sad that I was not able to be here on Easter Sunday because on Easter Sunday, uh, I was going to actually do these exact same verses. Uh, we're going to be in verses 34 to 39 today. Uh, while you're turning there, growing up, uh, my parents took me to church on two consistent days a year. Can you guess what those two consistent days were? Christmas and Easter. Yeah, you know it. Uh, so uh, I had a pastor one time say that that meant I was not a Christian, I was a creaster. And I thought that was an appropriate term because that's what I was. Um, so uh, today's sermon is actually an adaptation of the sermon I had intended on preaching Easter Sunday. So there's going to be some weaving in of the resurrection, but I am not going to be talking about the resurrection in quite the same way that I intended to. So if I start fumbling with my words, I apologize. Uh, but, but Resurrection Sunday shows our verses in a, in a, in a wonderful light. Um, so there were two basic messages I heard a year, and it was a baby was born, shepherds sang, and then there was peace on earth. And then the other one was a guy died, and then he rose from the grave, people sang, and then there was, people, and then, and then there was peace on earth. It sounded really utopian. Uh, a silly event had happened. You know, babies are born all the time. Who cares? People die all the time. Who cares? And then this guy rose from the grave, which, you know, sounds a little stupendous. But peace on earth, utopian, wonderful, fantastic. But here I was, a naive little child, recognizing that this world is racked with war and famine. There's hatred, there's bigotry, there's dissension, division, selfishness, pain, suffering, despair, and frankly, most of those fall right into the church. And as a child, I thought, no, no, this has to be fake. This has to be unreal. Everything that they're talking about sounds wonderful, and what I see around me does not sound wonderful. I could see the fallacy and lunacy of the message that here was a baby and now there's peace on earth. There's not peace on earth. There, that has to be delusional. A guy died and now there's peace on earth. Baloney. The best thing about Christmas and Easter was that I got to go eat food with my family afterwards. That once the suffering of sitting on a wooden bench was over, I got to sit in a nice restaurant and I got to eat delicious food. The time that I spent in church meant nothing to me, except, except again that I got to go eat food with my family after, again, sitting on an ugly bench, looking at a person in a silly robe, talk about this utopia that didn't exist. So do you think that's why Jesus came to the world, to, to bring peace on earth? Because I didn't, I didn't think that. Sang about it, I even knew some of those Christmas songs that declare it. But is the world right now all sunshine and rainbows? Is it, is it daisies and roses? No, it's not. Now, I'm going to admit that I did not pay a lot of attention in those sermons. Chances are the gospel was actually in it, but I missed it. 
So let me go ahead and shatter not just not necessarily the sermons I listen to, but let me go ahead and shatter my recollections of those sermons uh, with the content of Jesus' own words. So again, Matthew 10, verses 34 to 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. But, but didn't he come? Peace on earth, goodwill to all men. Well, Frankly, if we were to look at that verse in context, that's in the beginning of Matthew that people get it, or in Luke 2.17, but, but the, that's a really rough translation. Jesus did not come to bring peace on earth and goodwill to all men. He came to bring peace to earth and goodwill to those who love him. Would be a much better translation. So no, Jesus did not come to bring peace on earth. He did not come to reconcile you to those around you, those who should be mad at you, or to make your life easy, because wherever you go, Jesus has come to bring peace. That is not what happened. No, according to Jesus, he came to bring war. He brought a sword. I'm sure all of you know what a sword is for. My kids have watched cartoons that make sure you know what a sword is for. A sword is to slice It exists to sever a person's body from itself. It exists to cut, to, to, in gruesome fashion, dismember things. That's what Jesus said he came to bring. Not peace, but an instrument that innately causes division when swung. But what sort of division? Uh, throughout the letters of the New Testament, a divisive person is warned against, right? Right? Isn't that, isn't that true? For instance, in Romans 16, verses 17 to 18, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, these divisive people, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk... And flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Division doesn't sound good there. Or also, Titus 3, 9 to 11, Paul writes again, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. By the way, the word Paul uses there for worthless is the same word that you would use to describe a poop pot. He goes on, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. 
Division doesn't seem like a good thing. And then Jesus actually says himself, Luke eleven seventeen. But he, meaning Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. So what is this division that Jesus brought? If he didn't come to bring peace, but instead brought a sword, what does he mean? What, is, what does he mean when he talks about divided households, when he, but then he, he says, a divided household is going to fall, but then on the other hand, he says, hey, I came to bring a sword, which, by the way, causes division. Well, it's a division, ultimately, between the saved and the unsaved. So the first point, the thing that I want you to take away is that Jesus did not come to bring peace to the earth, but to draw a line between the saved and the unsaved. A divisive person that the New Testament warns against is, is, is someone who tries to create division among believers, who tries to, tries to separate the people that actually love Jesus. That's the division that's warned against. They execute what I'm, I'm going to call the bad sort of division. But the type of division that Jesus is saying is a good thing, his whole purpose for coming is that those who follow him will innately divide themselves from non-believers. And even those among the same family. That point is actually illustrated in the preceding verses, uh, particularly verses 35 and 36, where Jesus says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Believe it or not, Jesus extols. He, he, he likes that sort of division. When following him creates dissension in a family unit. Uh, I want to I illustrate this, and this is kind of an illustrated long story of, of, of something I, I just heard. I, I just listened to a guy that talked about this sort of a circumstance and I'm kind of filling in some blanks, uh, but the important parts uh, he essentially said. So a young man in high school hears the gospel and believes it. Praise God. He knew that Jesus had died in an act that forgave his sin, propitiated God, uh, God the Father's wrath against him for his sin. And he knew that Jesus rose again from the grave, defeating death and securing victory against sin. He knew this. And he trusted that Jesus is right now sitting at the right hand of God, his Father, awaiting his inevitable return, our blessed hope, as Paul puts it in Titus. But while this young man knew this, his single mom, who had raised him single-handedly, and his older brother thought he was an idiot for believing this. This young man actually wanted to attend Bible college and, and go on to seminary and maybe become a pastor, uh, but his mom refused to pay a single cent towards this frivolous and stupid plan. This young man had an unsupportive mother of, of his pursuits. 
This young man was not able to do it by his mother's hand, uh, and he he wanted to work and 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 make money towards this, but his mom stole his money, didn't let him do it. It turned out this mother was actually physically and emotionally abusive towards the young man. And that's important because this young man wanted to go live with his pastor. So he had reached out to his pastor and said, hey, I would love to come live with you. My mom is not treating me well. And the pastor asked questions, found out again that the the mom was abusive and being a court-mandated reporter called the authorities on her. Not because he was mad at the mom, but because he's obligated to do so. The pastor was filled with compassion. He actually had offered for the young man to come live with him, but the mom wouldn't take it. And, but, but again, he, the pastor had called the authorities, the authorities checked in, and because of the pressure from authorities, the mom basically disowned the son and said, fine, you want to live with the pastor, you go live with him, but you are not welcome in this house anymore. This young man spent the last two years of his high school living with his pastor, and he tried to reconcile with his mom, but she was hard-hearted. She was mad. She was frustrated, and, uh, and he ended up being able to go to Bible college uh, because he got various scholarships, and then he was able to go on to seminary. And while he was at seminary, his mom, who was an avid smoker since she was in her teenage years, ended up dying of lung cancer. And the son had no clue that she was even sick because she did not want to talk to him. The only reason that he even found out is because an invitation to the funeral ended up at his pastor, his his old hometown pastor's door. Um, And so he called the son. Turns out that, again, the mother had been refusing all contact. The older brother wanted to call the younger brother, but... You know, mom said no, so he didn't. So the young man ended up coming and attending his own mother's funeral after not seeing her for roughly 10 years, knowing deep down in his heart that his devotion to Christ had pulled him away from this terrible crisis that his family had been facing. He and his brother were able to reconnect at the funeral. He shared the gospel with his brother. And while the brother didn't accept the gospel, um, he, he wasn't as hard-hearted as, as his mother was. And so he's able to continue to this day actually talking with the brother. The young man returned to the seminary, finished his coursework, and he's now planted a church. It's a Presbyterian church. I don't remember where. Now that's a bit of a long story, but it actually illustrates our first point perfectly. You see, this young man had been so devoted to Jesus that he experienced exactly what Jesus predicted would happen. And I do want to point out, by the way, uh, I don't have the, the examples, but Jesus lived these words, Matthew 10, 34 to 39. He lived them pretty specifically. His own mother and brothers came and tried to convince him out of what he was doing, and Jesus asks, who are my mother and my brothers? Aren't aren't my mother and my brothers the ones doing the will of God? Meaning the family. His family were the people actually following the will of God. And he also also got misunderstood. People tried to take him him by force. I think it's in John 9 uh, and and make him become a military leader. And he's like, no, 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 not that type of sword. (laughs) So I think that's great. But with our story, right, um, the young man wanted to tell his mother the good news, but she didn't want to hear it. He believed it, she didn't. 
In fact, she recoiled and hated him for choosing Christ over her. He was divided and cut off from his own family, scorned by his very own mother for loving Jesus. As Jesus put it in verse 36, that a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Such is the case of many a Christian throughout the world, and maybe, frankly, that's the case with a lot of you. Maybe you've loved Christ more than your parents, and, and you've gone off and done things that, frankly, they didn't approve of, but you knew were right. The story actually leads into our second point, which is taken from verse 37. The verse reads, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This young man loved Jesus more than his own mom, and Jesus fully approves of that devotion, that level of devotion. Loving and following Christ often means that we do as he is commanded, not what our family and friends think is right. So our second point, therefore, is this. Love Christ more than anything. We spend our days thinking that things or people are supremely important, don't we? How much of your day, let's say you're awake 12 hours, what percentage of that 12 hours is devoted to the, the things and the people around you. Chances are, since you're human, probably 90%. Maybe even more. You got to clean the house, you got to make food, you got to eat, you got to provide for those around you, you got to take care of those around you. You've got to you've got to do do things constantly, but but we can fall into a delusion that we think other things and other people are more important than God. And we might not admit that. We might not say that. And I'm not saying spend 90% of your day thinking about God. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that our actions work into our heart maybe a thought that, that our joy or, or our, our, our worth is in these things around us or in the people around us. When in reality, we're to love Jesus more than anything else. And you can serve Jesus by taking care of those around you. I'm not saying that's divorced. But I want you to do a little heart searching, a little soul searching. How much do you love X and how much do you love Jesus? Are you willing to follow the advice of X or the, the, the needs of X or are you willing to follow the, 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 the demands of Jesus? Reading the Bible reminds us that it's God who is supremely important. He's the one serving with all of our lives. He's the one worth serving even to our deaths. Which is the illustration that Jesus actually uses in verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Remember who Jesus is talking to in these verses. It's been a couple weeks. But remember that we've been leading up to this point. We've been talking about persecution, inevitable persecution, deadly persecution, terrible persecution. Jesus is saying this to his apostles. He's, he's preparing them for the sufferings that they're going to be taking on. Why? Because they're the sufferings that he is taking on, that he is marching towards. 
His, his worth is, is displayed on every single page of the Bible. There's not a single page of your Bible, unless you've got super giant print and there's only 10 words on it, but, if, but there's not a single page of the whole Bible where God's incredible worth is not declared perfectly. And man's faultiness is also declared perfectly. I actually think it's impossible, by the way, to not read a single page of the Bible and not see the worth, beauty, majesty, grandeur, uh, incredibleness, and be at awe of the person of God. I do not understand people that read the Bible and don't see that. I'm not telling you be more spiritual like me, but I just can't. I can't fathom not just being in awe of God every time I open his word. But remember, remember Jesus' statement, whoever does not take up his cross, whoever does not take his cross. Think of the apostles when they hear that. Now, the cross right now is seen. I mean, it's, it's coexistence with Christianity. You see a cross and you're like, oh, that means Christian. If you saw like a, a question, a multiple choice question that said, please mark your religion, and there were 15 symbols Everybody in America is going to see cross and go, oh, Christian. Some of those symbols, you're going to go, what is that? But at the time that the disciples are hearing this, the cross was not synonymous with Christianity. The cross was synonymous with death. It was synonymous with torture. It was synonymous with inevitable doom, an actual practice of the Romans. You see this in Jesus' death, but it was common for the convicted person who was going to be killed to carry the means of their execution to the place of their execution. It would be like somebody carrying their own electric chair into the room and setting it down and having to plug it in themselves. It would be like, like somebody carrying the guillotine and having to install it for their head to be chopped off or to hang their own noose. It was not a good thing to take up your cross. So when the disciples hear this, they, probably, they, they either glaze right past it or they're in absolute terror. It's probably no in-between. What do you mean take up our cross? We have to take up our cross and follow you, otherwise we're not worthy of you? That should strike fear, because that means, very specifically, you need to be willing to follow me to the death, or you're not worthy of me. Christians, we are to carry the burden of our own demise on our backs. We're to, we're to be reminded constantly of our fragility, of our inevitable doom. Something is going to take us, right? Right? I, so far in the world, there's been a 100% chance that every person born is going to die. So we march knowing that there is most likely a 100% chance of our death. You and I will probably die. And when I say probably, I really mean 100%. We need to be marching towards that reminder every single day. But you know what? We're supposed to be marching towards that reminder knowing that we're to die for the glory of God. If you don't die for the glory of God, you know what? You're not worthy of Jesus. 
That's what Jesus says. That, by the way, is either what was missing from those messages I heard as a child or what I just didn't hear when I was sitting through those messages as a child. The gospel is not a message of peace and good life. It's not a message of, of, of temporal joy and well-being. It's actually a message of us being willing to die for the sake of God. Our deaths are supposed to glorify God. Did you know that? How does, how does one do that? I don't know if you know about what happens when somebody dies, but when they die, they poop themselves. That doesn't seem very glorifying to me. Their body relaxes, all the muscles stop. It's a messy process. In fact, if you're going to die at home, you're, you're, you're supposed to have a particular lining under your, your sheets so that they can carry you out in it. So how do you die to the glory of God? Let's actually look at Jesus' final statement in verse 39. And I want this statement to marinate in your hearts. I want it to marinate in your souls, in your minds. I want you to hear the good news of the resurrection declared in a really wonderful way. With a caveat, with a warning. Whoever finds his life, Jesus says, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Our third and final point is this. Have your death glorify God, and you will find eternal life. That is a conundrum, isn't it? What do you mean? What do you mean? I have to lose my life to find life? It means that you are going to march towards your inevitable end happy. Happy that you are dying for the glory of God. That can be done on the mission field. It can be done in a hospital bed. It can be done in an, a car accident, something you didn't see coming. It can be done at home. It can be done anywhere. Remember the hope that Jesus has commanded and the hope that Jesus has offered in these verses. The commands of loving him more than family, than neighbors. Loving him more by speaking of his love and sacrifice to those who don't believe that message. Uh, remembering the truth of his resurrection. Remembering the truth of what that means for today. You know, while, while you and I can march forward understanding that we have a 100% chance of dying, and I recognize that, that, that there's, there's a line of thinking in Christianity that says, whoa, maybe Jesus is going to come back and I'm going to get raptured. Don't look forward to that. Look forward to actually the, 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 the death that brings you to, the, to God. Why? Because of the trillions and zillions and quabillions and whatever's above that of people that have died up until now, guess what? They died. They died. You and I, we're probably going to die. Death is inevitable. Whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow, whether it's 30 years from now, whether it's 50 years from now, chances are you're going to die, man. 
So die to the glory of God. Don't put off loving Christ. In fact, love him more than your own family. Serve him instead of serving your family. And I'm not saying abandon your family. It's not what I'm saying. To hear me say that is completely misunderstanding me. But instead, be willing to stand for Christ, to stand in him, to serve him more than you're willing to even serve your own kids. And that's hard for me, man. I got, I got three little ones. I love my kids. But if there was a chance or if there was a moment where I had to either sin by caring for them or do the right thing by serving God somehow otherwise, I would have to choose serving God. And there have been a lot of times in my own life where I've done things that my own parents did not approve of because I was supposed to serve God and not men. We're all going to end up with those points. We've gone through them. We will run into them again. But we are to march on towards our demise happy. Happy to die for Christ. Remembering that death doesn't have the final say. And that's actually the hope of the resurrection. You know, Jesus defeated death for us. For those of us who love and adore Christ, that's how we can read those final verses, how we can open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We can read verse 39 and go, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, I want to lose my life for your sake, God. Not because I want to find life specifically, but because I love you. I love you more than the people of this earth. I love you more than the things of this earth. If my garden burned down today, which Rachel just planted, by the way, and it's probably not going to last and we're really sad about, but if my garden burned down today, God is still good and I love him more. If my kids died today, while I'd be crushed with sorrow, I'd be sad beyond belief. If they died today, God is still good, and I will love him more. Through tears, through sorrow and despair, I will love him more. We have to believe him. We have to believe his words. Because... He's speaking truth. And frankly, if you read his word and go, well, you know, there's exceptions, and I should love my kids more than Jesus sometimes, right? That's what the Pharisees did. Well, I have to love the laws more than I love God. Well, I have to do what I'm called to do instead of loving God, because I'm called to follow the rules, and only the rules. You know, honestly, if I was under quarantine, and let's say, let's, let's, let's say one of you was in the hospital and you were dying, I'd probably break quarantine. I'd smile at the government as I walked right outside those doors, put on a mask, and drove to the hospital. I would, because I'm a shepherd, and I care for you. If, 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 if even though I would in my conscience go, but I'm supposed to follow God, Romans 13, following the authorities does follow God, I, I know what I'm called to. I have to love God more than anything else. And when I say march towards your demise happy, 
I, I cannot imagine that happening if you're not in the Word daily. And I don't want to really harp on this because every pastor does it, you know, hey, we've got to read the Word of God. But, but ancient Christians, you know, hey, they march toward death happy. They march towards martyrdom happy. And while they didn't have print Bibles, they didn't have the Word of God to crack open and read on a daily basis, they actually spent their days in the synagogue, hearing God's word, in small groups, discussing God's word, circulating the letters of the apostles. Daily they did this. Daily they did it. Daily we need a diet of God's word, and we have it in every medium possible. Daily we need to be in God's word. They didn't have the luxury of the technology of of mass printing, so they spent it daily discussing. Like I said, I really don't want to spend, sidetrack here, but, but if you're neglecting your daily Bible reading, you will not want march towards your demise happy. Instead, you'll be walking towards maybe, maybe uh, trite uh, theological phrases that you've heard. And, and, and maybe you'll have these precious reminders of God that aren't actually maybe the way God said them. If you're neglecting a daily reading of God's word, then you're actually neglecting a daily means of God's grace in your life. Take up and read. Take up and read. And in context, just read. I know in my sermons I only handle five or six verses, but even if I handled 100 verses, I'd still only have one or two points. Why? Because I only have 30 to 40 minutes. And 40 minutes if I want to put you guys through torture, which I'm going through today. Anyway, um, but you will not be capable of looking forward to your death if you're not reading God's word every day. And by the way, if you're not looking forward to glorifying God in your death, and I don't just mean looking forward to death and release and ending of pain, we call that suicidal thoughts, I mean, I mean looking forward to, frankly, glorifying God in your death. If you're not looking forward to that, then, then you need to doubt your belief. You, you need to dive into God's word, press into him, grab a hold of him and his preciousness, holding on with every ounce of your strength until you know deep down in your soul that you are his and he is yours. That is what you need. Everybody needs that. You know what? That's what I do. When I dive into God's word, I'm saying, Lord, I want to lose my life for your sake. I want to see you as precious. My fickle, frail frame is not capable of enjoying you, and I look forward to the day that you have decided for me that I do so. May I die to your glory. I don't say that every time, but that's essentially what I'm doing. I'm trying to mine God's word because I don't see it. I don't see it if I'm not in it. I find myself going after stupid things. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about us being content with mud pies when we have a, a, a cruise at sea offered to us in Christ. It's in Weight of Glory. I'm not quoting him. But it's, the first, it's, it's like the first paragraph of, of Weight of Glory. So friends, just to backtrack, the first point 
was that Jesus did not come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword, to divide the unsaved from the saved. The second point was to love Christ more than anything else. And the last point was to have your death glorify God and thereby find eternal life. Those are right here in the text. You don't need to write them down. Just read the verses. Let's go ahead and pray. And then we'll sing and we'll take communion together. Lord, you did not come to make things easy. You did not come to make life wonderful because this life is not meant to be wonderful. It's headed for destruction. My, my, my good works and my sins are both destined for the fire unless they're focused on glorifying you. So Lord, let us love you more than anything else. Let us remember that you are the only one worth serving. That everything else is a worthless idol with an empty sanctuary. But in your sanctuary are beauty and majesty. Let us march on toward our death, toward our demise, seeking to glorify you. So that as pain ebbs and flows in our own, uh, in our final minutes, our final whisper can be gain. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing our last song. Go ahead and stand.
don't forget, start shaking. <laughs>